All right, I'm going to show you a word, and I just want you to naturally react to this word. Just whatever you need to do in light of the word, you just do. Ready? I had a moan, but a bunch of laughter. This work is not, or this work, this word is not exactly uh, our, the most favorite word of all time. In fact, um, you might have heard it said if work was supposed to be fun, they would call it fun. But it's called work for a reason. So, work oftentimes is not a lot of fun. In fact, uh, for a lot of people, this is a, a drudgery. There are some of us who might be blessed where we love the work that we do. And we don't wake up, you know, hating work at all. But for a lot of us, Work is this necessary evil to get that paycheck so that you and your family can eat. And you don't necessarily like what you do. So overall, work is not all that well received as a word. And I just want to show you a couple of quotes from very famous sources. I need a part-time job that pays 20 grand a week. I would take that. Sorry, I can't go to work tomorrow. I fractured my motivation. You can try that tomorrow. I'm in desperate need of a six-month vacation twice a year. I feel like I should clean the house, so I'm going to lay down and nap until that feeling passes. <laughs> My boss told me to have a good day, so I went home. You know that one? I did a push-up today. I actually fell down, but had to use my arms to get back up. So close enough, now I need chocolate. In bed, it's 6 a.m. You close your eyes for five minutes at 7.45. At work, it's 1.30. You close your eyes for five minutes, it's 1.31. I love this one. Rabbits jump and they live for eight years. Dogs run and they live for 15 years. Turtles do nothing and live for 150 years. Lesson learned. <laughs> I like that one. I was uh, watching TV yesterday. I was totally alone yesterday. It was just kind of a weird day where my two boys were out there. They had a little get-together, and then uh, later on, they went to the UCLA-USC basketball game up at UCLA, so they were out of the house. My wife and my daughter, they went to a birthday party for one of my daughter's friends, and then they went to a little kind of girls' night out for, to watch something. And so I'm home pretty much by myself the whole time. And uh, my Saturdays are generally interesting days because I do some final sermon prep, do some TV watch, and usually play with the kids, but there was no kids around. And so I just do a lot of eating, TV watching, and messing around with the computer getting ready for today. And it's really sad. It's just very, very sad. But I was watching the Golf Channel, very riveting, Genesis Open, just incredible TV. And this commercial comes on, and it is uh, for this, this program, this weight loss program, turning fat into lean muscle. Now, when I hear turning fat into lean muscle, I know exactly what's coming. Somebody's going to push some pill, some 5,000-year-old formula that magically, you know, melts away fat with a pill. And it's all bull. And uh, so I was expecting that. But this, this, this workout crew came on, and they started just busting their rear end. And they're doing all kinds of workout gear and weights and aerobics and whatever. And like, if you want to lose weight, you got to work, and we're going to make you work. And I thought, finally, somebody's telling the truth about how to have this, these ripped abs that they have. I have a one-pack, they've got this eight-pack, and, and they were just very honest about how you get that kind of a body. And, um, and I thought, that is great. At least they're being honest. I changed the channel, got another bag of chips, and just did my, <laughs> did my deal. But at least they were being honest. The, the reality is that if there's anything worth doing, it's worth working for. You might have heard something similar to that. And a lot of life is a lot of work. Anything that is meaningful takes a lot of work. It's just the reality, right? We've got to embrace that reality. Relationships take a lot of work. Marriage takes a lot of work, right, in order to make it fire right. Lots of work. Parenting, extraordinary amounts of work. So much so I wouldn't have had kids if I knew. It's a lot of work. Uh, if you want to do something in your career, you got to work hard, you know, to, to, to get ahead, to achieve what you want to achieve. 
Um, it's a lot of work to do something significant with your life, like volunteering. If you want to impact other lives and you volunteer, it takes a sacrifice of time, it takes a sacrifice of energy. Now, here we are in our winter study. We are tackling the book of James. The book of James is a book of action. In fact, the word work is in there quite a bit. Faith without works is dead. It's this very interesting dialogue through the book of James about how faith inter interweaves with action, with work, right? And so through the book of James, we're going to talk about putting our faith to work. But work is something that is increasingly a, uh, a foreign concept to Americans, in some part because our lives are so automated. Our lives are so automated, we have to do very little actual manual labor. In fact, some of us don't do any manual labor at all, right? Our yard is even taken care of, and house cleaning is taken care of. We do almost no manual labor. Thankfully, there are still people out there who have to put on work gloves and work boots, and they get their hands dirty and build America, build the world. That's great. But for a lot of us, it's, it's an automated lifestyle. For example, I'm quite sure nobody here in this room got up at 4 a.m. with a gun to go kill your dinner for tonight. Right? I'm pretty sure you didn't do that because our lives are so automated. And so the idea of work just kind of wastes away a little bit over time. There's a book, uh, got some traction several years ago by author John Straussbaugh, and he wrote a book called Sissy Nation. Sissy Nation. And he starts the book with a, an admission, a self-admission, that he is, in fact, a sissy. And then he goes on to explain why he believes the entire American culture is sissified. He says, one thing all sissies have in common is fear. Americans used to be known around the world for their adventurous spirit, their bold individualism, and their brashness. We now live in a culture of fear, anxiety, paranoia, and insecurity. We're afraid literally of everything. We're afraid of sickness, afraid of death, afraid to even really live. We're afraid of strangers, outsiders, and aliens. We're afraid of the food we eat, the air we breathe, the water we drink, the soil, and the weather. We're afraid that the planet itself is rejecting us. We're afraid that our neighbors are predators, afraid that our children are sex-crazed, and afraid of ourselves, our own bodies, our minds, our thoughts, our desires. We're afraid of our own individuality. In fact, no sissy is independent, but always a member of some identity group, usually one that sees itself as somehow victimized or threatened. We're even afraid of the real world, afraid of reality itself, so we do whatever we can to ignore it, to insulate ourselves from reality, to guard and to protect ourselves against it and to escape from it. We lull in safety-padded, rounded corners of virtual fantasy where constant entertainment and distractions abound. Our seatbelts are tightly secure and our helmets are strapped on, and we are afraid." So whether you agree with that or not, or agree with the tone or not, or offended by the word sissy or not, um, the truth there, I think, is something we can all sort of agree with, that the reality of work and toughness and vigor is kind of melting away. And as we study James, what we're going to see is a bold call to action. In fact, as we study the book of James, we're going to hear a very clear invitation to live unafraid to live bold and to live active lives, doing something significant with the lives God gave us, as we phrase it, to live a beautiful life. It's a bold life, an active life, a life that has to put in some work in order to achieve something truly wonderful outside ourselves. So here we are. It's a book of the New Testament, and it's a book of action. It's a book of work. And yet it's surrounded by other books written by the Apostle Paul, who was obsessed with grace. And so the question is asked, should our faith be hard work? 
This is a big discussion among church circles. If, if the New Testament is filled with the teaching of grace, and here's the book of James that talks about boldly and actively living out a life of good works, the question is asked, should our faith be hard work? And I want to stomp that out right now. The answer is absolutely not. Our relationship with God should not be hard work. That's very clear. It's an essential core of the gospel, the good news that we talk about week after week as a grace-based church. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 famously says this. It's by grace you've been saved. It's only by God's grace that we're forgiven and brought into a right relationship with God. And that grace is received through faith, and that faith is not even of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The Apostle Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, made it very, very clear that our faith is not hard work. In fact, our faith is in God who did all of the work to save us, to forgive us, to give us new and eternal life. He did all the work through Jesus Christ. He bore our sin. He rose again from the dead. Our relationship with God is perfect because our sins forgiven in Christ and Christ alone. We didn't earn it at all. So to be clear, faith is not hard work. It's easy. Jesus says, my yoke, my burden is easy and light, right? Enjoy your relationship with God. But as we receive God's grace, God's grace does something within us that is powerful. In fact, the number one value of Rancho Community Church, we have five of them, the number one value is revealing God's transforming grace. And that is very intentionally designed because we are revealing God's grace as the word of God says has been active from before the beginning of time. So we are revealing God's grace that's already there. But God's grace is also transforming. That's key. God's grace is transforming. We don't work our way to God's grace, but once we receive God's grace by faith, God's grace does a work in us that transforms us to be more and more like Christ over a lifetime. The Apostle Paul, who wrote prolifically about grace and grace alone, uh, talks about his own life of how grace works in his life to create hard work. He says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 9. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. God's grace transforms. He says, no, I worked harder than anyone, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. The grace of God that we receive freely in Christ does a transforming work to make us more and more like Christ. To fix a broken world, to bring hope to a hopeless world. And last week we talked about uh, the first verses of the book of James that makes it very clear this world is broken. This world is absolutely broken and needs to be fixed. So James chapter 1 verse 2 says this, that we face trials of many kinds. He's talking about us. He's talking about believers. He's talking about globally. We all face trials of many kinds. This world is broken. This world has suffering. This world is a world full of injustice, unfairness. That's just a reality around that, right? That's a reality. Now, in light of the reality of the brokenness of the world, we are apt to have several possible conclusions. In the face of the brokenness of the world, we can conclude that there is no God. It used to be that uh, about 2 to 3% of Americans were atheists. Now that's about 6 to 8% of Americans are atheists. So this is really kind of catching on that there is no God. And these folks look at the suffering of the world and say there cannot possibly be a God and that's it. A second option is that God causes pain to punish us. This is a very misguided point of view. In fact, uh, there are a few times in my life where I have been ashamed to be associated with the Christian faith. And I'm telling you, the pinnacle of that was after the uh, massive earthquake in Haiti that leveled much of the country. 
so many Christian evangelical uh, right-wing folks said, well, see, God is punishing Haiti for their unbelief in voodoo. I could barely believe it. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Are you going to say that to your neighbor who runs into a tragedy? As we talked about last week, so much of human suffering just is seemingly random. No rhyme, no reason. It is unfair to say God causes pain to punish. There's also a conclusion that God is powerless. This is called open theism. It's not really gaining or losing traction, but open theism uh, is, the, uh, is the belief that God just kind of is a victim of circumstance himself. So, you know, he wakes up and, hey, what are we doing today? And something happens, oh, I didn't see that coming. He's just kind of walking life with us. That doesn't quite seem reasonable to me. Fourth option is that God doesn't care. This one is gaining a lot of ground. This is uh, sort of that uh, agnostic group that believes in God because belief in God for most people is self-evident. I exist, I think, I reason, we exist, there's a cosmos, there's a reality here, it must have come from some source. And so it's self-evident that there is a God, but you look at the suffering of the world and you can't possibly say that that God cares. A lot of people come to that conclusion. Sort of a version of deism that God sort of winds up the cosmos and then leaves it to its own devices and whether it goes well or not, it's none of his business, he doesn't care. This is really gaining traction and frankly makes some sense. There's a fifth option that we talked about just a little bit last week that in the face of suffering, we take personal responsibility for our part in that. In fact, in James chapter 1 verse 13, it says this, and this is from the Message Bible, I love the way it's put. Don't let anyone under pressure to give in to temptation say, God is trying to trip me up. God is impervious to evil and puts evil in no one's way. I love that. God is good. Now, in God's goodness, God created the heavens and the earth, and he put mankind in charge of the earth. We read that last week. He put mankind in charge of the earth. He gave man dominion over the earth and says, you rule over it. So because mankind is ruling over the earth, mankind has a choice between good and evil, and mankind chooses evil so much. We choose to elevate ourselves. We choose to hurt other people. And while we might be at risk of saying, oh, yeah, there are people who elevate themselves and hurt others, we also have to look at ourselves as well. We are part of humanity. We are part of the story of choosing evil and choosing suffering in this world. Have you ever said something, whether you meant to or not, have you ever said something to hurt another human being? You probably said something to hurt somebody you love the most. You probably said something to hurt your spouse, to hurt your kids or to hurt your grandkids. You've probably done something to elevate yourself in your family or in your neighborhood or in your workplace, and you might have said some untruths about yourself, and you might have said some untruths about others or spread gossip that hurt other people. Humanity is made in the image of God to choose good and evil. We oftentimes choose evil and choose hurt, and every single one of us is part of the story of hurt. The question is, what are we going to do about it now? What are we going to do? Are we just going to kind of keep rolling in selfishness and rolling in hurting others, or are we going to say, no, that's going to change? And I'm going to get on board with God's plan to turn the suffering of the world that we caused, turn that suffering into goodness, into goodness. God is not the creator of evil. He doesn't put evil in other people's way. So what are we going to do in the, in the light of this hard reality that we all, the collective human consciousness, has created the evil of this world? What are we going to do now? Well, let's follow Christ and let's wage war against the suffering of this world. That's the call of the book of James, to wage war against the suffering of the world. Let's look to the example of Jesus. And here's the example of Jesus as he's reaching out and serving and caring for somebody who is sick 
and poor and hungry and diseased and homeless. Jesus gave his life as the full expression of the heart of God to relieve the suffering of the world. That's part of our lineage, part of our heritage. Jesus says in Luke 19, 10, I came to seek and save that which was lost. He even went so far as to give his life bearing the full suffering of the world upon himself. He gave his life bearing the world's sin upon himself. That is the measure of the heart of God to forgive by bearing the suffering of the world. To make the world better by bearing the suffering of the world upon himself. Jesus had four siblings, it is said, and one of those siblings, his younger brother, was James. James the Just. This is an ancient depiction of James the Just. And it shows one of his values is to uphold the word of truth. And then his face, we'll talk about that uh, just a little bit, proves his dedication to help those who are suffering. James the Just is the brother of Jesus. He gave his life to minister to those who are suffering, so much so he took a vow of poverty. He chose never to eat or drink anything expensive. So he ate no meat, he drank no wine. Uh, He did not shave. He did did not want to put any attention to his physical appearance uh, to show any kind of vanity whatsoever. He never shaved his face. He never bathed. I know it's kind of gross, right? Never bathed. But I just want to let you into to, to James' heart here. James had a heart for those who were suffering. So if there were homeless people who could not bathe, he himself would not bathe. He wanted to experience their suffering upon himself. He did not wear fine fabrics. He only wore old linen. One of his titles besides James the Just was James the Perpetual Virgin. He never had a relationship with a woman, never got married. He wanted to live a life of isolation and suffering. That's the life he chose to live. Now, uh, anybody here want to sign up for that? We're taking sign-ups no, on the app later. No, me neither. That's not my calling. And fortunately, uh, James, brother of Jesus, did not impose his lifestyle on anybody. He does not, throughout the whole book of James, he never asks us to live the life he lived. But he does ask us to live a life that relieves other people of suffering in the lineage of Jesus and in the lineage of James. So in James 1.17, he makes a turn from talking about suffering now to talking about hope. He says, for every good and perfect gift is from above. Now he's talking about a positive, hopeful vision for the future. And these good and perfect gifts come down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. So suffering is like shifting shadows. That's how suffering comes. So, you know, you're cruising down one day, then all of a sudden you're diagnosed with a disease. Things are going fine, you lose a loved one. You know, life's going well, you lose a job. I mean, these are the kinds of things that happen in life. This is just the way it is. Suffering happens in seemingly random ways. But God is the father of the light. In other words, like the stars. Um, They don't move. They're not shadows. They're, They're permanent and they're steady. God's goodness is permanent and steady. So the world that humanity presides over is a world of suffering. But God says, I am making a permanent and steady promise to this suffering world. Trust me, follow me, uh, work out your faith in powerful ways, and this world is going to transform from a world of suffering to a world of goodness and grace. He says, he chose us. This is powerful. He chose us and gave us a new birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Now, there's some old religious jargon in there, and I want to just unpack first fruits for just a minute. We are the first fruits. Now, what does that mean? We don't use that word. Uh, We do not use that word because we're not ancient. 
uh, Eastern farmers. If you were an ancient Eastern farmer, you would have the idea of first fruits, and they still, some pockets still have this idea today. So you're a farmer, you take uh, the harvest in the spring, and you take about one-fiftieth of that harvest and you give it to the temple. And this is true of nearly every Eastern religion, there's a first fruits offering. Well, the Jews are a, an Eastern religion. And so uh, God in Deuteronomy said, here's how you perform the first fruits offering. If you're a Jewish, Jewish farmer, you take about one-fiftieth of that harvest, you give it to the temple for the provision of the work of God, and that's how it goes. Now, there's a reason you gave the first fruits offering. You did that to show allegiance to God, but you also did that so that the one-fiftieth of the offering you gave to the temple would then return blessing to every bit of the harvest. The people of Israel were also called first fruits. They were the first people to have God's grace and God's goodness and God's forgiveness. And so they're the first ones. They're the forerunners in the world so that now all the world can know God's grace and goodness. They're the first fruits. In 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection of Jesus is considered to be the first fruit of the resurrection. He's the first one to go before us all who will be raised from the dead. So the idea of first fruit is that we are the forerunner of goodness so that later goodness can come to the whole. To put it very specifically, first fruit is a small portion of the present that will one day be the norm for all things in the future. The book of James calls us the first fruits. It's the first fruit of mercy to a broken world, the first fruit of goodness to an evil world so that one day all of the world would be good. God calls us to be that small portion in the present so that one day the whole world will experience God's transforming grace. That's who we are. In a world that's broken, in a world of suffering, we wage war against suffering and we bring the goodness of God to a broken world. We're the first fruit so that one day the whole world will become alive by God's grace. So how do we do that? How do we live that kind of life as a first fruit showing off the light and the grace and goodness of God? Two quick things and we're done. Number one, We've got to actively examine our own life. Actively examine our own life. This is not always easy. It's not always easy to do self-examination because we might be afraid of what might come. We might be afraid of what we're going to see. James talks about this self-examination in this way. He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. Later in James chapter 2, he says, um, uh, don't, just be, um, don't just hear the word, but do it. Faith without works is dead. So he's talking about works and active, an active, beautiful life here. He goes on to say, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Now this is very funny coming from a guy who never shaved and looked like filth, right? He uses a mirror analogy. He probably was being convicted that, yeah, I do look pretty gross. So I brought a mirror, it's a bath mirror from our house. And sadly, every once in a while, you gotta look at what's there and, and oftentimes it's just not quite right. Um, dude pushing 50, there are wrinkles right here that are pretty serious, the bags under the eyes are, are growing. Uh, I've got this chin thing. I hear that gets better with age, right? It gets real tight, for, no? All right. Other issues going on, you know, if I got shrubbery hanging out of my ears or spinach in my teeth, you know, you got to do something about that, right? And so you look at a, at a mirror and you are supposed to do something about it. And that's what James says we're supposed to do when faced with the perfect law, the perfect law. What he's essentially saying is that self-evaluation is necessary in order for us to go to war against the suffering of this world. 
We have to ask ourselves, where are we causing suffering? Where do we need to improve? Where do we need to show mercy? Where do we need to show selfless love? James goes on to say this in James 1.25. He says, the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. You want to live a life that is beautiful? You want to live a life that is meaningful and profound? Look at the perfect law and make some changes. Those changes don't earn us favor with God. They don't earn forgiveness. They don't earn eternal life, but it's a work of grace within us. We look at the law, we make some changes. So what is the law? When we talk about the law, we might say, well, 10 commandments, you know, the Old Testament. I don't think that's what James is talking about. James is a follower of his brother, Jesus Christ, and he is looking to Jesus Christ as his leader and following Jesus Christ even in his own suffering. And so I believe James is looking back to the law that Jesus articulated. Jesus says all of the law, all the prophets, all the Ten Commandments, all the Old Testament can be summarized in love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the summary of the law. In the very next chapter, James chapter 2, verse 8, James makes it very clear what the law is. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, which is to love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. Whenever James talks about the law, he's talking about love. So the mirror we look at when we examine our own life is the mirror of love. It's a perfect mirror of love. And we want to ask ourselves the question, and it's a doozy of a question. We want to ask ourselves the question, am I loving like Christ loved? That's what James is calling us to. Am I loving like Christ loved? Well, I'm not perfect. I can't love as perfectly as Christ. Well, that, I get that. You can't. I can't. I totally get that. But we look at the mirror, the perfect love of Christ, and we say, okay, I've got some things that need to get tweaked. I've got some you know, wrinkles, some bags, some chin, and some spinach on the teeth. Let's get this thing squared away. Let's do some work of loving more like Christ. That's our lifelong journey. We may never arrive at Christ's perfect love, but that's a lifelong journey of grace. So we have to do some self-evaluation and finally to actively improve the lives of others. To actively improve the lives of others. James chapter one ends with a very simple description of what the real royal law is and how that uh, really plays out in improving others' lives. He says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. He doesn't give a list of do's and don'ts. He doesn't give a list of commandments or religious expectations. Pure and faultless religion is to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That is James' definition of a life well lived, a beautiful life, a life that is alleviating suffering and replacing that with good, a life that looks after people who are struggling. And during the time of Christ and the time of the early church, orphans and widows were struggling because everybody was looking out for their own. Everybody would look out for their own kids, their own family. And so where there was a, a child that was fatherless and motherless, nobody cared about that child. Because, yeah, who cares? It wasn't a part of my family. Who cares about that kid? That was the normal culture in the religious system of Judaism. It missed the mark in powerful ways. And James was confronting that, and Jesus confronted that. True religion, a true, meaningful, and beautiful life looks after the orphans and the widows. This is the heart that animates so much of what Rancho Community does. We do so much, collectively, we do so much to help people who are struggling. We operate the community mission of Hope and the Temecula Pantry and Hope Lake Elsinore, 
helping hundreds and hundreds of families make it through the end of the month with food so they can pay their bills, keep the lights on, prevent homelessness. Imani Christian School over the years will, will educate thousands of orphaned Kenyans in a Christ-centered environment and equip them to change Africa. Plus One Palawano has a staff of 10 that goes up to the highlands of this tribal group that we've been in a relationship for 30 years and is now reducing the child mortality rate from 50% to 15% by just solving basic needs that nobody cared about before we got there. Needs like um, uh, curing um, uh, malaria, uh, making sure they have nutrition so they don't have uh, dirty water and dying from diarrhea and, and malnutrition, preventable issues. There's a reason why I have Celebrate Recovery next door every uh, Thursday night at 6.30 with 20 groups leading people to freedom from addiction, from anger, from depression, from anxiety, from being the victim of abuse, uh, walking with them in their grief of uh, losing a loved one or, or a child who committed suicide. We are walking alongside these families who are struggling. We opened Safe Harbor Counseling Center to help strengthen and save families locally. We have our impact department addressing issues from human trafficking to international justice, mobilizing Rancho Community Church locally and globally to alleviate suffering. Every department at Rancho, from children's ministries to mature adult ministries, are actively involved in alleviating suffering in this world and replacing it with the goodness and grace of Jesus Christ. I can't tell you how excited I am to stand right there on those stairs watching the announcements of youth going uh, in, on mission trips for our middle school students to spend three days in downtown LA ministering to those who are homeless, to have our high school students all over this world having wonderful experiences of alleviating suffering and replacing it with God's grace. And all this is fueled by your volunteer hours. And so for every volunteer hour you put in, whether it's at Rancho or a Rancho partner or just doing something good in our community, you are involved in being the first fruits of God's light in this world waging war against suffering and replacing it with good. That's what we're all about, that goodness that comes from God's grace in Jesus Christ. I'll never forget the first time I was asked to help people who are in need. We had a group of uh, latchkey middle school kids here at Rancher. I was 17 years old, so this is forever ago. And uh, I was in high school youth group helping to lead that. And uh, somebody said, hey, do you want to lead that group of middle school students? And I said, absolutely not. I ended up doing it. Didn't really want to, but I ended up doing it, and that summer changed my life. I still know some of these kids to this very day. Now, this is in the time of irresponsibility, right, where a 17-year-old could lead a, a, a group of minors and drive them around every day all summer. No seatbelts. I mean, that, I wish those days were back. I mean, that was just awesome. Everybody's got to be all safe. That was the first time my whole world opened. Now, whether from there I ended up in ministry or ended up in the marketplace, that would have changed my life forever and has changed my life forever. Just taking that risk to get involved, taking some time and doing something good for others. One of my mentors is Monty Sharp. He's been mentoring me since I was 14 years old and still in town and still ministering to youth all throughout the valley. He lives his life to just bless people every day. Just bless people every day. Now, whether or not you can lead in a ministry or not, maybe you can, maybe you can't, maybe you don't feel equipped or have the time, you can do what Monty does. Monty spends every day of his life blessing everybody he meets. So I know when I go to breakfast with Monty, I know he's gonna spend half of our time together making everybody's day around him. I mean, the booth to the back, the front, the side, the side, every server that comes his direction is gonna feel like they are the absolute center of the universe when he talks to them. The way he looks at him, the way he asks him questions, the way he cares, the way he tips. I mean, that's a guy who's blessing the world around him. I want to be like Monty when I grow up. In fact, uh, just, 
just yesterday, I'm in a parking lot right across the street in the Stater Brothers parking lot. And I park, uh, park my truck and I'm walking into the store and I see this, an older couple start to back out of their parking space going right towards my truck in slow motion. I'm just standing there and I'm going, they're gonna hit my truck. And then bam, they hit my truck. I just kind of knew that was coming. And uh, so if you've ever done body work or insurance, you just know that it's a complete headache for everybody. The one who hit and the one who got hit. And so I felt bad as an older couple and they just, I just saw their face and they looked at me and it was my truck <laughs> and they parked. Rolled down the window, I came over to them and I just said, I am so sorry, I am so sorry. And whatever I can do to make your life better as we kind of work this out, I will do. And they said, you're sorry, we're sorry. We're the ones who hit your truck. And now I didn't want to be that nice, but I had the sermon to preach and I needed an illustration. And so I just like, <laughs> all right, we're gonna do it. But, you know, living that kind of life where you just, even if somebody offends you, hurts you, whatever, just to kind of think through a different lens and to say, okay, my job right now is to be kind. My job right now is to be gracious. My job right now is to alleviate the suffering of others, no matter how big or how small. I want, uh, I want to bear the burdens of other people, place it upon myself, and I want to be a little bit of the first fruits of the light and the grace of God in this world. I mean, just imagine our church you know, a few thousand people here today, just imagine our church looking at the mirror of God's perfect love and say, you know what, I can make some tweaks and I can live my life in a way that blesses others. My mom is one of my heroes. She was in the last service. I actually kind of little, cried a little bit, didn't see that coming, but she's in the last service. And, you know, my family's been through a lot and God's grace has just fixed our family in incredible ways. And my mom's one of my heroes. She's a retired lady. She worked her whole life full time. I mean, just really working hard to help provide for the family. And she's retired, and uh, she's enjoying her retirement. She's sleeping in late, and uh, you know, here and there, and she's going on trips, RV trips, and just enjoying retirement. But three times a week, she spends a few hours, and she alleviates the suffering of others. She'll go over to the Community Mission of Hope, and she'll just get to know some people, and people who are right there on the edge, or uh, spend some time with a homeless woman, just to kind of be there and to be a friend. Uh, later in the week, she goes to Project Touch, and just is around this group of uh, homeless folks who are sheltered. On Thursdays, she goes to the hospital. She goes room by room, every room of that hospital, just to bless people's lives who are hurting and afraid. Just unassuming, not a trained theologian. You know, she's, uh, um, she just worked very hard her whole life, but she chose to live her life to alleviate the suffering of the world around her and replace it with God's love and grace. She's one of my heroes. All of us can make little decisions to just give a little bit of time, a little bit of effort, a little bit of skill, a little bit of love, to improve the world around us. For James, it cost him his life. James, the brother of Jesus, uh, battled oppression his entire life. James, the brother of Jesus, suffered with those who suffer his entire life. And he battled the religious leaders as Jesus battled the religious leaders. And, and that battle resulted in the crucifixion of Christ. And for James, it was almost the same. In his 50s, James was arrested by the religious leaders of the time, the oppressors who were causing suffering. They took him to the top of the temple and they threw his body off the temple. He hit the ground, his body was mangled, it didn't kill him. They surrounded him and started throwing rocks at him, pummeling his body with rocks, and they ended his life by taking a club to his head, crushing a skull. That's how James, the author of this book, died. Now, I doubt God is calling us to live a life confronting oppression in such a way that we'll end up with our crucifixion or us being cast off of a tall building and have our head crushed. God is calling us, however, to each live a life 
of significance, of beauty, of living a life of selflessness and say, what can I do today just in my normal day to be a blessing to others, to take suffering and replace it with good? What can I do to volunteer, to give my life in one of these ministries just an hour or two, a week maybe, to come alongside somebody who's hurting, to bear that hurt and to replace it with God's grace? As God uses each of us together, he is creating a new community to make a whole new world that isn't defined by suffering and pain and death, but is defined by God's grace, God's love, and God's eternal life freely given in Christ. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for the example of Jesus who gave his life, every bit of it, including giving his life quite literally on a cross to suffer every bit of the pain the world endures. He took it upon himself. He took our sin, our failure, our shame upon himself, and he suffered intensely. We, following, we follow a suffering servant. And as we follow a suffering servant, we see that the early church, led by James, was right in line with the heart of Christ to come alongside those who struggle, to bear that burden, and to replace that pain with goodness and grace and love. God, we want to live in the lineage of Christ and the lineage of James. We want to live a life every day that just blesses other people, that lives for their benefit, that looks through the lens of putting others first, not always having to be first or having to get the attention or having our way, but God, making sure that other people's lives around us are happier, are more fulfilled. God, that we would put other people first in our own home, in our neighborhoods, that we would look at where people are suffering and get involved, not run away from the awkwardness of that, but get involved to get to know people who are struggling, to hear their story, to bear their burdens, to cry with them, to hug them, so that they would know that there is somebody who walks with them through it all. And as we walk with them through their suffering, they will know that God himself walks with them because you walk with us. God, may this church be that first fruit of your grace, the ones who go forward in a broken world to bring the light and life of Jesus Christ himself. In his name we pray, amen.